0: Hi there. This week's episode is part two of a longer conversation I recorded. If you missed part one, go back to the previous episode so you can get caught up. Thanks for listening You know, you you use a, a number of words and I don't think interchangeably you use them alongside each other and they feel different to me. So I just want to explore yeah. that when you sort of talk about our purpose and our meaning and feeling alive. I, I think for me, each of those things might actually be very different. My purpose might be different than meaning, might be different than than what makes me feel alive. And I also, I find myself... Um, I I think we're, many of us are in this like struggle to like understand our purpose or to find meaning. And, and, and that actually feels um, like it comes from that unhealthy adolescent stage place. Um, And, and I'll, I'll just throw one more thing in here, which is I've been, like I said, taking a lot of walks in the woods and. And I would like, you know, say, okay, I want to think about, you know, fiction and a story. And I'm going to like take a walk in the woods and figure it out. And I would come back and I wouldn't have figured it out and I'd be frustrated. And then at a certain point, like I think it was like in the early morning, you know, having just woken up and kind of just thinking about my day. and, And it occurred to me like maybe the point of a walk in the woods is to walk in the woods. Like maybe there's no particular purpose to it or deeper meaning to it except being in the woods. Like it does something. It, it helps me feel alive, actually, to to be in the woods. But it's so, so anyway, all of that sitting. I'm sort of sitting with that in the ways we can get misguided in, in the pursuit of purpose and meaning.
1: Yeah. Um, what purpose and meaning means in early adolescence is a very different thing than it means later. So, in early adolescence, that's the third stage in the, my eight-stage model, I call it the oasis, the healthy version I call the oasis, early adolescence. The unhealthy version has several renditions, and one is um, I call conforming and rebelling. There's so many people in contemporary cultures who are so have such a desperate desire to be accepted, just socially, that they'll conform to current styles. They'll conform to the styles and um, activities of their peer group. And it's hard then, not
0: to, right? I mean, it's very hard in not our to.
1: culture. It's hard not to, and people expect you to. Right? And you'll be rejected if you don't. And so it's very hard to develop our authenticity, our just our sense of our own values, our own interests, our own styles, our own sexuality, and so on and so forth. And so, but, even in a healthy early adolescence, which I call the oasis, our purpose involves you know being both accepted in our peer group, but also being authentic, uh creating a persona, a way to be in the world that is admired, or at least as is, is accepted in our peer group. And as we get older, even staying in early adolescence, which by the way is not just our early teen years most contemporary people never get out of early adolescence, no matter how late how old they get. But as we get like out of our teen years, then our social purpose becomes about a job or a vocation or a particular social role, or maybe a a place in a religious organization, and so on. So that's what we mean by purpose. And if and if we're in a like relationships or we have an activity that we really really enjoy, then we say that's where like, I get my meaning from. That's all early adolescent, and I'm not criticizing it. It's important to go through that stage because what we're doing in early adolescence is creating our first persona that's separate from like the value system of our parents. No matter how great that value system might have been, we've got a early adolescence. We've got to create our own drama, our own. And we got to identify which people are going to have which roles in our drama. This is healthy early adolescence, the, the purpose, the and meaning that go with that is very, very different. Um, it's in late adolescence, which I call a cocoon, that we go through what I call the journey of soul initiation. And during that journey, if it, the um, intention uh, or goal of that journey is to discover our deeper meaning, which is the meaning associated with their soul, which is to say, it's the place, or the niche that we were born to take in the, in the larger world. That's a very, very different sense of meaning, and purpose. And just to give people a couple quick examples, because I imagine a lot of our listeners are sitting there going, Yeah, I kind of get it abstractly. But what's an example of that? First, I need to say that, when we have, when we learn, what our deeper soul oriented purpose is, it's not done literally in terms of an ecological niche. Rather, um, we have it's done through metaphor, we have some kind of poetic, or dreamlike experience, often called a vision or a revelation that shows us what our echo niche is, in symbolic or metaphoric terms. So without going into the details, when when I had my first soul encounter, I was 30 years old, I was told, using my deep imagination, I was told by a um, butterfly, yellow butterfly, that my role in life was to weave cocoons, cocoons of transformation for myself and for other humans. And I literally heard this butterfly say that I say I use my deep imagination, but not consciously, my deep imagination just plugged in. And I literally heard this butterfly as it Flew by me and touched my left side of my face with one of its wings. I heard the words cocoon waver. It's my muse.
0: And when you say you... Let's go slow here because this is important for for people, I think. When you say you heard the words, meaning the butterfly... And this goes to practice, like how we practice in deep imagination. The butterfly touched your face and you thought to yourself cocoon weaver or you heard the words like you heard the butterfly say and i'm using these words like i don't know that these are the right words but you heard the butterfly say you know bill Plotkin, you will be a cocoon weaver or you are a cocoon weaver not not quite a, such a, a well-formed sentence
1: i simply heard the words cocoon weaver cocoon weaver now keep in mind this was after four, almost four full days of fasting alone, at eleven thousand five hundred feet, ten miles from a road, and engaged in all kinds of of consciousness shifting practices. By the way, it didn't involve psychedelics,
0: right,
1: or any other um, substance. But four days alone and practicing in certain kinds of ways. Um, in this case, it was a contemporary version of a vision fast that I guided for myself. Our consciousness shifts, and after that, even less than four days of that, and we're able to be in relationship and conversation with other things. and our imagination just translates for us.
0: so here's my fear as I listen to you and I think, and i I, I think, okay, so this I remember having this fear, actually, as a young, I remember two very, very specific experiences as a child. One was looking at my hand and realizing, oh, my God, I'm a person like I'm a person like there's seven billion people. There's I look this up over the course of human history. There's been one hundred and seven billion people. As far as I know, I've only been and am only one of them. Like. Uh, like it's I, I don't even know exactly how to describe this. But it's mind blowing to me. It's like how like that the 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 magic of that the profundity of like I exist as a human being on this planet is overwhelming mm-hmm. and and yes and thrilling and 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 now let's take that experience which i'm still which I've been sitting with a lot recently like like what is that? Me? How am I spending my life? Like I've got this one shot. Like I don't know if it's one shot, but you know I've got this one experience. And and then and and now I'm I'm bringing it back to this, you know, the the butterfly. And like I remember being in Israel, as a, you know, as a probably a young adolescent, and and being enamored by these very religious people that I saw who had like completely committed their lives to Judaism and to um, God in the way that they see and understand in Judaism. And I remember, and I'm Jewish, and I remember thinking like they have totally committed their life to this. What if they're wrong? Like, what if they're (laughs) wrong? What if they're, like, what if they've structured their lives around this thing that's like not that like they devoted their lives to something that's just like not there or like the 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 fear. And so it's like, wow, I'm I know there's something I know there's something much deeper than my rational mind. I know there's something much more powerful of an experience than just think my way to success right or plan or strategize my way to success which is how you know certainly been one of the underlying streams in how i operate or have operated in the world and 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 there's something much more you know there's something that i watch a movie and it brings tears to my eyes and i don't exactly know why but i know i've been touched deeply about something and then there's the if i go out and i fast for four days and i'm in this somewhat altered state of consciousness and then a butterfly comes and touches me and I hear the words cocoon weaver. And then I design my entire life path from then on based on that. Like, what if I was just like, you know, dehydrated and you know, like I like there's there's that. So I, I, I'm holding both of those and I feel the excitement of of hearing cocoon weaver and the fear of can I trust it? So I want to just. I don't know if all of that makes sense, but I want to it hand did. it to you. Thank you. See what you do with it.
1: We have, you know, we all have these parts of our psyches that um, in Wild Mind and in our work at Animus, we call um, our inner protectors. A little bit more formally, we call them sub-personalities. Well, but the inner soldier, protectors. talk
0: about it as the soul. The, the... Loyal soldiers loyal soldier. is
1: one version of one of four categories of inner protectors. Mm -hmm. we got a lot of inner protectors. And and we had them since our earliest days in childhood. And their job is to protect us from doing things that would lose our acceptance from our family or as we get older from a peer group or from our work colleagues and so forth. Um, And they keep us from acting in ways that they are afraid would lead to our being hurt physically emotionally spiritually etc their job is to protect us and they will keep us away from experiences that they think would rock the boat too much well when you hear a guy like me talking about the journey of soul initiation and something we haven't even got to which is the main thing in the book which is the descent to soul mm-hmm. and about deeper purpose and about you can't get there through the strategic mind and all these things that I've been saying and that people who are listening have heard. Your inner protectors are getting really terrified. And they're gonna do whatever they can to dismiss what I'm saying in one way or another. Um so that's that's one piece of the background. And they're 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 just doing their job. And without them, we we wouldn't have gotten we wouldn't have survived as well as we have, we wouldn't have achieved as much as we have in life. And you could say that one of their goals is to keep us in early adolescence, they don't want us progressing and getting to the cocoon stage, where we'd have to uh, leave behind everything, everything, the ways we identified ourselves and the way we understood the world, they want to keep us from that experience. Luckily, there's these other parts of the psyche that that long for that deeper experience more than anything. They're willing to take it's going to take risks, but it, if it's true, eighty percent of people are stuck in early adolescence. That's twenty percent at the most who ever get to the cocoon. Okay, back to another part, a part of your point here, Peter, about hear, my hearing cocoon weaver, and so an inner protector would be saying to you, as it said to me, okay, I've got the information I needed. I've got the blueprint for the rest of my life. All I've got to do now is use my strategic mind and be a cocoon waver. What could be simpler than that? As soon as I get back and have a shower, I'll get right to it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not how it works at all. That if it's a true soul encounter, there's something, this, this metamorphic, that's what I call it, a metamorphic process starts happening in our psyche, and in our bodies in a certain way, and we, are, we start getting changed by that experience. So a soul encounter, like with a butterfly that says cocoon weaver, is not primarily information. In fact, in the book, I give examples, stories from other people of soul encounters that had no information in them whatsoever. What makes it a soul encounter is that it starts to go to work on us, it's, and it shapeshifts us shape, it changes our ego, which shifts our consciousness it's it's slowly it starts a process of turning us into somebody who, in my case, could actually weave cocoons. When I was given that quote information, if you want to look at it that way, I was 100% incapable of not only weaving cocoons, but even understanding what it meant. Um, And there's in the book, um, it's the fourth of five phases of the descent to soul we call metamorphosis. And there's a set of practices there that people can use to uh, amplify, intensify the experience of metamorphosis so that it goes quicker and deeper than it would otherwise. But even then, it's typically a year, maybe more, before our ego is shapeshifted enough that we can even begin to embody our soul's purpose in the world. It takes a while. For some people, it can take a long time. For Jung, it took many years. Carl Jung, uh, which is one of my stories in the book, Um, So, and also in the book, there's a list of about a dozen qualities that most soul encounters have, because a lot of people ask me and other guides at Animus, well, I had this really profound experience, I'd call it a spiritual experience. But I don't know if it was a soul encounter or not. And we, we um, uh, suggest people take a look at that page in the book There's also a page like that in Soulcraft and say, Well, how many of these qualities does this experience have? And the more they it had, the more likely it was a soul encounter. There's so much more to say about it, but I hope I at least began to answer your
0: yeah, questions. No, Great it's, questions. It's uh it goes back to the practice word and and to uh you know, it's very tempting to pursue soul initiation the way we know how to pursue any project, right? And yeah. and that, that um misdirects the project of of soul initiation in a sense if you approach it in that same way so one of the and you mentioned it uh just briefly one of the central experiential components of the uh journey of soul initiation is the descent to soul can you share with us what is the descent to soul
1: (laughs) and it's going to be one of the most enchanting joyous things that ever happened to us like you thought, Oh, okay, this is what life is really about that this kind of challenge. And we we long for that kind of challenge. Like in Soulcraft, there's the story of um, oh God, can I remember his name, the guy who went sailed to the South Pole, uh, early on, on um, what's the name, the famous name of the thing? Shackleton, exactly. And he put out, you know, I guess he was from England, and he put out an ad for yeah. sailors, and basically said, we're I can't remember the details, but we're going on this impossible journey. We may not come back South Pole, you may not come alive, the most come back alive, the most likely outcome is (laughs) you won't. And but the adventure there was so alluring that he got way more applicants than he could take. So there's something in us who wants to go on this great journey, the descent to soul is that kind of thing. And it's actually what I wanted to title the book, but my publisher, the editor said, People, that word descent. people will think you're going to go to hell, and it's going to be a bad experience, so we won't title it that. But you'll see when you, you know, I'm talking to the listeners here, if you you read the book, it's an incredible adventure. And there's five phases to it. And I've learned these phases by guiding this kind of experience for 40 years. And the models that I initially started out with, which is what were available in the famous literature uh, on rites of passage, and also Joseph Campbell's work on the hero's journey those two templates do not at all fit the descent to all, And so that kind of got me off track for a while. And then I just paid careful attention to what my experience, and uh, the experience of people I was guiding and later, with Carl Jung's experience when he went through his descent, and others I've read about. So is these five phases. And the first one is just preparation, getting ready for the journey, which most contemporary people, they might need years of preparation, and only because of what we missed in our human development because of the culture that we live in. Um, but there are ways to prepare. I, I outline those in in the new book. And with the second phase, things really start rolling. And I use two analogies. One is going down into a canyon, like the Grand Canyon, getting down to the bottom, going up the other side, and then walking back to your, to your village on the other side. But another analogy, you won't be surprised, is the experience of the caterpillar in the cocoon. So let's use that one today. The preparation for the caterpillar is weaving a cocoon. If it's a moth caterpillar, if it's a butterfly caterpillar, the preparation is that something in it knows how to turn its body into something like a cocoon that biologists call a chrysalis. Um, Okay, so that's the analogy in preparation. For humans, it's psychospiritual kinds of preparation. That's detailed in the book. Um, The next phase is going down... Uh, the descent, and I call that dissolution. And for the caterpillar, once the cocoon of the chrysalis is formed and sealed, then the caterpillar's body literally dissolves. Imagine that happening to you. You've known nothing but caterpillar life, and you, you just look, and your body is becoming this liquid soup. Um, something similarly harrowing happens for humans when they're in this stage of the life stage of the cocoon, and they're going on their descent. And, and that is that your identity starts to dissolve your sense of who you are in the world. You, you even if you can remember what social roles and jobs you had, and probably you can remember, you have no belief in them anymore. You, you can't imagine you ever thought that's who was who you were. But you have absolutely no idea who you really are, who you were born as yet. So that's dissolution. Back to the caterpillar. After the body dissolves, then there are these cells that have been in the caterpillar body all along that biologists call imaginal cells that go to work. They've been dormant. And in fact, the caterpillar's immune system sees them as enemies and has been trying to destroy them, but hopefully didn't succeed. So these imaginal cells, they're called imaginal by biologists because the adult form of that creature is called an imago. So the imaginal cells are the cells that know about the butterfly or the moth, and they are imagining flight, which caterpillars never did, of course. So the in that third phase of the um, journey, the caterpillar, the imaginal cells wake up and you can say at that we can imagine at that moment, the caterpillar has this image of flight and understanding that Oh, that's my destiny. that's like hearing cocoon weaver, but the caterpillar can't create with a strategic mind a butterfly body, it just has the image. And what it corresponds to in humans is the that third phase at the bottom of the canyon. It's the soul encounter phase, where you have that visionary experience, In my case, at first soul encounter, it was the butterfly experience. And um, So the imaginal cells go to work for the caterpillar and creates this butterfly body. That's the fourth phase where that caterpillar soup that now has an image of a butterfly or a moth body actually creates that flying creature. And that takes some time. Same with humans, that we've had the soul encounter, but now the metamorphosis has to happen. It's not our bodies so much that change, it's, it's our egos. And our egos are being shape shifted from an adolescent ego that understood itself as an agent for itself, to an adult ego that understands itself as an agent for soul, which is a kind of agent for mystery, which is a kind of agent for life. That Who am I working for, really? I'm not working for a corporation or a school system, etc. I'm working for the earth community. I was born to create a possibility in the world that well, the world will not have unless I do it.
0: So let me ask you a question. I know we're not we're not uh, uh, done with uh, we haven't gone to the enactment and maybe this is this is teeing us up for enactment. So I, I'm hearing something I want to check with you, which is, you know, you're Bill Placken, Right. So you you have a very clear identity. It's certainly in the outside world. You've written a number of books. You run the Animus uh, Institute. From the outside world, if, if, if somebody doesn't know you, they could just look at you and say, okay, here's a high achieving guy who decided he's going to do something, built an organization, has a name for himself, has a certain reputation and a certain fame and a certain amount of money. And like this is what people aspire to. And And what I'm hearing you say is all of those things can happen, whether you are in early adolescence or in mature adulthood. And... The yes. difference is the, the way in which you hold it and the place that you come from in it and your, the needs or not needs that you have. So you, the, the words that I want to use is you, are, uh, you have more freedom to uh, because you're not held by the need of those things in the same way to be able to say, you know, I built Animus Valley Institute uh, in order to, in order to, you know, it, 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 as an advocate of soul and earth. And, and now if I feel like it's, if I feel like what is best for soul and earth is to dissolve Animus Institute and do something else, I will do that because it's not about those things. It is truly and and only you internally know this, although you could feel it in your, you know, in the energy with which you make decisions and communicate and connect, um, that the place you're coming from has a depth and commitment to something which is much bigger uh, and deeper than the manifestation that it shows up with in the world. Am I articulating this correctly?
1: Not only correctly but beautifully, Peter. I mean, you just got it exactly right. I, that's I, I couldn't have said it better. That is absolutely correct. The the language we use um, to do that in shorthand, which isn't as beautiful as what you just said, is um, delivery system. That those things you said about me, like being um, I actually don't run the institute anymore at all, but I'm the founder of the institute. Yep, yeah. and um, I'm. For many years, I was a psychotherapist. I was also, for me, a delivery system for cocoon weaving. That's what I was really doing as a psychotherapist. I was weaving cocoons for those who were in that life stage if they were ready for it. Otherwise, I was pretty much just a psychotherapist. Um, I'm an author. I do public speaking sometimes. Um, but, you know, there's no context in life in which I can't practice cocoon weaving. And and whatever context it is, it's delivery system. Like when I was in my late 30s, I was in a social group. It was kind of a conventional social group. And the men in that group liked to get together on Wednesday evenings and play poker. This is kind of embarrassing to admit. And I thought, you know, I have no interest in that whatsoever. But I'm a really, really shy person. And I realized in my 30s that I was going to have to uh, cultivate my uh, social skills if I was going to get better at cocoon weaving. And so I started going to these Wednesday night poker games, playing for really small stakes, it was mostly just a social thing. Um, and I did it for two reasons. I, I wanted to get better at socializing. So I wouldn't be terrified of the people who were coming to to be guided by me on the descent to soul. So I was really, really shy. And the second thing is I said to myself, man, If I can weave cocoons while playing poker with a bunch of guys who don't have a foggiest idea of what soul is or have no idea at all what kind of work I really do in the world, if I can do it there, I could do it anywhere. And there was one night where uh, one of the men took me aside, he was a physician, and while we were having dinner before we started poker, and and he he told me some stories and he looked at me in a way I realized he is treating me like a cocoon weaver, though he knows nothing about that. There's nobody in this group who have ever told that story to. Right. And he is asking for that kind of guidance from me. And that was the last night I played poker because I figured I did it. I and, manifested. And,
0: and that's it. kind of, you know, you talk about, about the direction of adolescence to adulthood, to mm-hmm. to being an elder. It feels like that's kind of what it means to be an elder at that point.
1: Well, actually not. Okay. No, I was in my thirties, among other things. And um, elder true elderhood, which is even more rare than true adulthood, I'd say, you know, maybe 10% at most at the most of um, contemporary humans, like certainly in the Western world ever reach the first stage of a of true adulthood, maybe 20% get to the cocoon, but without guidance, and understanding what's going on, maybe only half of the people ever get to the cocoon and get through it, mm-hmm. They 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 might spend the rest of their life as caterpillar soup or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But elderhood is as different from adulthood as adulthood is different from adolescence. Mm -hmm. It's a whole nother story. And see if I do this really briefly. Um, An elder is someone first of all, who has been in adulthood for 10 20 years or more, Mm -hmm. and has been uh, creating their own in late adulthood, we create our own unique delivery system that has never before been seen. And that's a major task of late adulthood. At some point, we kind of get tired of that. And and we get this sense that we're being called to a role in the world. That's even beyond adulthood. That's not about my bringing my particular gift to the world. And my shorthand for what an elder does is this. An elder cares for the soul of the more-than-human community. And there's so many ways, I've a long, long chapter on that in Nature and the Human Soul, but real briefly, um, there's many ways to do it. But one of the things elders do is they make sure the balance between the human village, all the human activity in the world, is in a, kept in a good way in relationship to the other-than-human world. The elders are the ones that make sure that even the brilliant, visionary adults aren't doing things that are wrecking the rest of the world Mm. the adults are too busy doing bringing their particular soul gift to the world
0: it sounds prophetic how do you mean meaning it sounds like the people who are at the edge of the village that nobody particularly wants to talk to who say hey look at what you're actually doing like who who where religious systems would call the prophets who are saying i can see something bigger than what you know, what most of us are looking at and and that and I'm going to be a voice for that, even though it 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 may leave me on the outskirts because most people who are certainly in their early adolescent stage aren't looking for an elder to tell them, focus on something more than yourself, because right now they're trying to really totally focus on themselves. So it feels like a a sort of prophetic stance the way, you know, the 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 role the elder plays in society.
1: I think that's part of it. But elders also have a very key role with children, mm-hmm. with early adolescence, with late adolescents during their initiation experience. Mm-hmm. And they're also the coaches, if you will, or the, um, the mentors of people in early adulthood. The way an adult, an early adult, learns their delivery system or systems from elders, from right. masters. Right. That's master is the archetype of the early elder. So um, let's see, there's one more. Okay, this this will help people understand. In a healthy culture, you don't have politicians.
0: I could totally agree with that without even hearing you say more. (laughs) Yeah, you know what the next sentence is. You have elders. And elders are not elected. Right. They're
1: recognized. Right. And anybody who's a healthy adolescent or an adult can recognize an elder in a healthy culture. Right. And instead of having Congress, you would have what's, in some traditions, it's called the Council of Elders. Right. Now, I'm not saying we should dissolve Congress tomorrow. That was tried on January 6th. Yeah, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for the wrong reasons in the wrong ways, obviously. Um, I'm not saying we should dissolve Congress and appoint, you know, a find a Council of Elders, because we are so far from being able to do right. that as a culture.
0: Right.
1: It's, it's going to take many generations Right. In which the each culture has designed their own version of the journey of soul initiation. Right. And after a few generations, we have most people over the age of 25 or so who are true adults or or elders. Right. And then a healthy culture will organically appear without anybody's strategic mind trying to figure out how to do it.
0: Bill, I I hate to stop us because it's it's so uh, fun and interesting and alivening to to speak with you. I know we've run out of time both for you and for me. Yeah, uh, yes, but you know, and maybe we continue this conversation. Maybe even we do another podcast, or maybe we, you know, sure. You know, we, we, you've been, and you've certainly offered a tremendous amount of sage. Uh, wisdom, and and uh, food for thought uh, for people as we engaged. And I want to just also reinforce the book, which is The Journey of Soul Initiation, uh, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. If you have not read any Bill Plotkin, you need to. Uh, it, is, it is work to sink into, uh, and I continue to. And I'm so grateful that you... Uh, agreed to join us for this conversation. And uh, it just even speaking to you leaves me wanting more. So thank you, Bill, so much for being on the Bregman Leadership. You're welcome. Thank
1: you, Peter, so much for the invitation. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.